2: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So a couple of weeks ago, you quoted this old deep thought by Jack Handy, and it took me by surprise. Do you remember doing this? So I don't remember
3: what we were talking about, but I definitely remember quoting deep thoughts. And I think it was like the face of a child can say it all, especially the mouth part of the face. (laughs) That is definitely
2: (laughs) the one. That was one of my favorites, although it's hard to pick a favorite. And Honestly, it had been a few years since I'd really binged on Deep Thoughts, and I feel like that's the only way to experience them. Like, you Uh have to read a hundred at a time, and so I was a little bit overdue for this. And for any listeners who might not remember Deep Thoughts, they were these silly and stupid one-liners that were delivered as though they were these inspirational and meaningful pieces of advice. And you know, Jack Handy had actually been writing these since the mid-'80s, but I'm pretty sure you and I both discovered them when Handy would read them on Saturday Night Live. Is that, is that where you first heard them?
3: Yeah, definitely. That's when I was first exposed to them.
2: Yeah, so this was the early-'90s. I guess we were both in middle school at the time. And I thought about another one when Tristan was wearing these fancy kicks the other day. He's got lots and lots of shoes, but he had some some really fancy ones on. And so I, I thought about this one. it said... Um, before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away from them and you're in their shoes. <laughs>
3: just is so stupid. I love that. But
2: it is kind of good advice, I guess. <laughs> oh, it definitely is. And actually, one of the other things I noticed is that there was more than one deep thought about pirates, weirdly. But I think my favorite was pirates were always going around searching for treasure and never realized the real treasure was the fond memories they were creating.
3: <laughs> well, I do feel like you're reading that as a sign because we've been talking about doing an
2: episode on pirates for such a long time now. We definitely have. I mean, that, that's how we knew it was time to do this because we've been keeping this list of all the pirate stereotypes and wanted to know what of them are actually true and like were pirates anything like the ones that we see in the movies did they actually say stuff like shiver me timbers or bury treasure or did they really carry around monkeys and parrots and my god i hope that they did but it's time to find out so let's dive in Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my friend Mangesh Hot-Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, I actually don't know what Tristan is doing. Today, I am up in New York. I'm in my hotel room in this very fancy (laughs) studio, which is just my desk in my hotel room. So it may not sound as great as Tristan usually makes it sound. But Mango, I got to know, what is Tristan doing? So he did
3: not disappoint. He showed up in a total pirate Halloween costume. Um, He's got everything. He's got an eye patch, a bandana, tri-corner hat. He's got uh, hoop earrings. He's got a stuffed parrot on his shoulder. And he even has a tri-corner hat for his stuffed parrot. I'm not sure how true to life that part is,
2: but it is a nice touch. So well done, Tristan McNeil. (laughs) Oh, wow. And actually, I just, as we're talking, I just got a text from Ramsey showing me a picture of Tristan. This is amazing. I mean, you could say every part of his costume is pretty much in line with the way that we conceive of pirates because, I mean, I guess this is how we're used to seeing them in books and pop culture. So thank you, Tristan, for furthering this stereotype of of pirates. But it does make us wonder, like, How much, if any, of this is actually true? And I don't just mean how pirates dressed in real life, but how they acted too. Like, on the one hand, pirates we see in movies and theme parks often come off as these really these charming and kind of rough around the edges folk heroes, almost like Robin Hoods of the Sea or something.
3: Yeah, I mean, you think about like Wesley from The Princess Bride, and
2: he's just kind of a gentleman pirate. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, when you read these historical accounts and Pirates mostly, though, sound like these bloodthirsty outlaws. It, it's a bit of a mixed message. So with today's show, we thought it would be fun to try to make sense of the competing pirate narratives. And to do that, we'll fact check some of the biggest stereotypes we typically associate with pirates and see which ones hold water. And then a little bit later, we'll separate pirate truth from pirate fiction when we share a few of our all-time favorite pirate stories. So, Mango, you want to kick us off? Like, What pirate cliche do you feel like we should start with today?
3: Well, I I was thinking about it. It, You know, it was international talk like a pirate day not too long ago. And while I did manage to slip a few R's into my conversation (laughs) this year, I also, you know, I I couldn't help feeling like a little bit of a phony since I actually have no idea how pirates talked. And Mm. as it turns out, Nobody does. So piracy was at its peak during the 17th and 18th centuries, so there aren't really any audio recordings to refer to, and the witness accounts that we
2: do have only include kind of a handful of quotes from actual pirates. What about writing from the pirates? I mean, it feels like there's got to be at least one pirate autobiography floating around out there, wouldn't there be? Yeah, actually, there really aren't. There isn't much of a record of
3: anything written by pirates themselves Blackbeard supposedly kept a diary of all his exploits, but that's never been recovered. And so the little bit of writing we do have from actual pirates comes mostly from the ones who started out as nobility before going rogue. And since they tended to be really well-educated, their speech patterns probably wouldn't have mimicked those of most pirates anyway.
2: So, you know, you think about all the talk of salty dogs and scallywags and pirates inviting folks to shiver me timbers, whatever that actually (laughs) means. But like, none of those are phrases that pirates actually used? Yeah, probably not. I mean,
3: like I mentioned earlier, there's no real evidence one way or the other. But most scholars think English-speaking pirates from the so-called golden age of piracy probably spoke the same way merchant sailors did at the time. A lot of both of the people in these groups came from uh, riverfront neighborhoods in London. So it's likely they spoke with similar accents and used common slang. But
2: sadly, you don't really see shiver me timbers coming up in, in much of that discussion. That is a real disappointment. But so <laughs> I'm guessing the pirate jargon we're used to mostly comes from books and movies, right? Stuff like Treasure Island or Peter Pan, I guess. Yeah, and
3: Treasure Island in particular is the one that'll uh, come up a lot today. A lot of the phrases we connect with pirates were first popularized by the book in 1883, and then again in Disney's movie adaptation in the 1950s. And actually, the movie version is also credited for our association of pirates with these gruff and vaguely Scottish accents. And that's because it starred Robert Newman as the fictional pirate Long John Silver. So Newman was a native of southwest England, and as such... He spoke with this really distinctive regional dialect called West Country English, and some of the dialect's characteristics line up perfectly with how most of us imagine pirates to have talked. So, for example, West Country speakers tend to emphasize their R's. They also replace the verb is with be, which is, you know, a decidedly pirate move when you think of constructions like uh, where be the rum. Right. And if that wasn't enough, West Country speakers are even known to replace the word
2: yes with R sometimes. Huh. So our conception of pirate speech seems to be pretty arbitrary when you when you break it down like this. I mean, if it really does go back to just that one performance?
3: Yeah, so Newman's role in Treasure Island wasn't his only one as a pirate. He also appeared in a couple other pirate movies in the era. And it was all of this together that started to influence other people's portrayal of pirates until finally the West Country accent just became the standard. And... While it might seem random that a southwest English accent would become the de facto voice, there's actually more of a historical connection than you might expect. So just listen to this explanation I found on Slate. Quote, It's not entirely arbitrary that Newton should have used an exaggeration of his own dialect to play Long John Silver. The West Country, the southwest corner of England, including Cornwall, Somerset, Devon, Dorset, and Bristol, has a long seafaring tradition, and so many historical pirates would likely have spoken in a similar way. Both Blackbeard and Sir Francis Drake were from that area, although Sir Francis was technically a privateer. But perhaps the most famous inhabitant of the West Country is Hagrid from the Harry Potter series. Can't you just imagine Hagrid saying, You're a pirate, Harry?
2: End quote. Yeah, I mean, I can easily imagine that. And I actually can't believe that I'd never made that connection before because Hagrid totally sounds like a pirate or, yeah, or at least. Me either. Like, yeah, a fictional one, I guess. But uh-huh. You know, there is some evidence that pirates really did have their own unique way of speaking, including some bits of nautical lingo that eventually found their way into popular usage. And now the origins of these phrases can be pretty tough to pin down, but there are at least a few that are thought to have come from pirates and privateers, including, you know, learn the ropes and, of course, three sheets to the wind and... The first of these came from the need for sailors to understand how to use the complex system of ropes and pulleys that control the ship's sails, mm-hmm. so they would literally have to learn the ropes. And so
3: was uh, three sheets to the wind just as literal, or, or was that a term for being super drunk, like
2: how we use it today? This one was actually pretty literal, too, and and actually the original phrase pirates used was three sheets in the wind, not to it. And and so you might guess that the sheets in question were the sails on a ship, but Actually, they were the ropes that controlled those sails. So uh, apparently, if three or more ropes became loose, the sails would start flapping, and then the crew can lose control of where the ship's headed. So if somebody's really drunk, they're just as out of control as a ship with three sheets in the wind.
3: Hmm. So another question I was eager to answer is whether or not pirates really hid buried treasure. And while it does seem like this happened on occasion, it was definitely not a widespread practice. In in fact, I could only find a couple historical accounts of pirates actually burying their loot. And... Even in those cases, the pirates only hid it for a short period while they waited for the heat from their latest heist to die down. In fact, pirate treasure never stayed buried for long, and they certainly didn't circulate a bunch of treasure maps with big red X's on them for people to go looking for it. And that's partly because pirates didn't really deal in treasure chests full of gold, or pieces of eight, or whatever you like to imagine. Like, instead, when pirates looted ships, they were stealing things like coffee and sugar and tea and textiles, like whatever those ships were carrying. And then they would sell those spoils on the black market, and that's how they'd end up with the pirate gold we associate with them. But even then, once pirates had all this gold in hand— They weren't super frugal or forward-thinking enough to invest it. (laughs) Instead, you know, according to this maritime historian named David Cordingly, pirates typically blew their loot on drinking, gambling, and women as soon as they got
2: to port. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that fits with the pirate lifestyle a lot more than squirreling away your money. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, think about this. Burying treasure would effectively be like putting your money in a bank and, I don't know. Banking doesn't strike me as this very piratey thing to do, but... Exactly. Anyway, I mean, this idea of buried treasure had to come from somewhere, though. So do do you think it just spun out of those few scattered accounts that you found? I mean, that's what I
3: thought at first, but it turns out this is another case that's rooted less in history and more in Treasure Island. So in the book, Long John Silver is on the hunt for a stash of hidden gold. And of course, a secret treasure map is the key to finding it. But what's funny is that Robert Louis Stevenson didn't actually invent this idea, and he didn't base it on real life either. Instead, he flat out stole the idea from another 17th century author, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, really? Yeah, so it comes from Poe's short story, The Gold Bug, and the main characters hunt down Captain Kidd's treasure using a cipher that's based on how frequently certain letters appeared in the English language in the story. And this is pretty much the same premise as in Treasure Island, except Stevenson substituted a map in place of the cipher. And the author later copped to this, too. Like, like in his preface to the book, he said, quote, the map was the chief part of my plot.
2: For that, I broke into the gallery of Mr. Poe. Hmm. All right. Well, a pattern is definitely starting to emerge here because I actually have another pirate stereotype that we can at least partly thank Treasure Island for. And that's the idea that pirates made people walk the plank. Now, to be fair, plank walking did exist among pirates to some degree, but most historians will tell you that it was a pretty rare form of punishment. Now, the most recognizable example of the practice occurred in the mid-1800s, I think, and this was when an eyewitness reported that a British ship captain had been abducted by pirates and that, quote, a plank was run on the starboard side of their schooner upon which they made Captain Smith walk, and as he approached the inn, they tilted the plank when he dropped into the sea. Now, beyond that, we know that some Caribbean pirates also force-captured sailors to walk the plank, and there are even some accounts of Mediterranean pirates taking part in something similar back in the days of ancient Rome. In this case, the pirates would suspend a ladder out over the ocean and then mockingly invite prisoners to crawl out on it and swim back home to freedom. Oh, that seems pretty cruel, but yeah. I'm curious, how does Treasure Island fit into all of this? Basically, Robert Louis Stevenson and a few other writers of his era are mostly responsible for making plank walking, you know, more ubiquitous than it really was. And their stories presented as kind of the go-to form of punishment that pirates used. And this idea was only enforced by popular illustrations and paintings from this same time period. Now, all of that really cemented plank walking as one of the visual icons of piracy. And the interesting thing about this misplaced attention is that it actually makes some pirates seem less cruel than they really were. Because if pirates really wanted to do away with a mutinous crew member or a troublesome captive, I mean, they had far worse methods than simply forcing somebody overboard. And, you know, some of the more common practices included marooning someone onto an island, which almost always resulted in a slow death for the victim – Then there was the especially grisly punishment called keel hauling. And this was when the victim was tied naked to a rope, thrown overboard, and then just tragically dragged beneath the entire length of the ship while barnacles cut up their skin. It's pretty gross to read about. Yeah, That
3: feels horrible. In fact, I want to get us on a happier note ASAP. So I'm just going to come right out and tell you that pirates almost certainly kept parrots as pets. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is another pirate trope that was popularized by Treasure Island. Long John Silver was the first fictional pirate to walk around with a parrot on his shoulder. But in this case, Stevenson was really drawing from history. So to give a little background, when we talk about the golden age of piracy, which I still find such a funny phrase to say. (laughs) But, you know, we're really referring to this period from about the mid 1600s to around 1730. And in that time, the recent discoveries of the Americas and Australia had created a boom in exploration. So for the first time in history, multiple nations were shipping tons and tons of money and valuable goods all across this largely uncharted and unprotected oceans. And of course, this made them easy picking for enterprising pirates, hence the term Golden Age. But in order to rob ships of their precious cargo pirates had to go where the ships went, which meant sticking to trade routes that mostly led to the Caribbean or West Africa or the various coasts along the Indian Ocean. And this required long voyages that lasted weeks or months at a time and often took the pirates to these exotic lands populated by unusual animals like parrots and also monkeys.
2: So let's get to the important part. Please tell me that the monkey thing is true because (laughs) the, the world is kind of a rough place right now. And I feel like it would make me feel better to know that a pirate captain could have had a parrot on one shoulder and a monkey on the other one.
3: So there isn't much documentation about that specific combination, but (laughs) uh, pirates with monkeys certainly weren't uncommon. Parrots were the more practical pet, though. Parrots would eat things that were already on board. So you think about, like, fruits or seeds or nuts, and they didn't really need that much to sustain them. Plus, they could be taught all these kind of neat tricks, like how to talk and... You know, there's no better way for a pirate to start up a conversation at port than by introducing people to the talking bird that he, you know, picked up while at sea.
2: Well, that's a good point. And still, you think after a while it might be kind of risky to walk around with a big, bright bird on your shoulder? I mean, it seems <laughs> like that's a tough way to keep a low profile. Yeah, but it's also good branding. You
3: know, <laughs> good. <laughs> I don't think that many pirates actually kept their parrots for that long. According to this historian, Angus Constum, author of The History of Pirates, he writes... Back home, people would pay good money for parrots and other exotic creatures, and sailors could easily buy them in Caribbean ports. Some were kept, but most were sold when the ship reached home. So really, they were selling them as soon as they got to
2: port. Well, that makes sense. So, But still, it's nice to know that pirates really did keep parrots, even if only for a little while. But All right, well, I know there are a couple more pirate myths that we want to take a look at, but before we do, let's take a quick break. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the facts and fiction that fuel the modern view of pirates. All right, Mango, so one of the more interesting topics that I looked into this week were the big gold earrings that pirates wore. And the question here wasn't whether or not pirates really wore them. I think you know most historians agree that many of them did, but why did they wear them? So the story I'd always heard is that the earrings were a way for pirates to pay for
3: their burials. Like uh, hmm. if a pirate happened to die on land instead of at sea— the gold from their earrings could cover the cost. And obviously, even for a pirate, that would be preferable to just being put in this mass grave or left out for the crows to eat, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is some evidence that supports this idea, but those earrings and other kinds of jewelry weren't just a failsafe for pirate burial. I mean, they were also symbols of rebellion against the 17th and 18th century laws that were really meant to control what people could wear or do in their private lives. So in England, just for example, men weren't allowed to wear jewelry, and certain colors were off-limits for commoners to wear. And if somebody didn't conform to those rules, they could be heavily fined or even imprisoned. So as this pirate historian Gail Selinger put it, these so-called sumptuary laws were, quote, a legal way for the ruling class to separate themselves from commoners by regulating what they wore, what they could drink, and where they could live.
3: Well, I mean, it is easy to see how none of that would sit very well with pirates who are obviously big fans of flouting the law whenever
2: possible, right? yeah, exactly. I mean but for full disclosure, some historians do question how widespread the practice of dressing flamboyantly and wearing earrings really was. And you know many of them would argue that the bandanas and the sashes and earrings that we usually picture pirates wearing actually come from. More like these series of drawings in children's books and that those depictions had really been based on Spanish bandits, not pirates. But, you know, as with most things we've talked about today, there's not a ton of evidence in either direction, though. So it's likely that at least a few pirates did dress this way.
3: Well, and that kind of in-your-face fashion sense would also fit into what we do know about pirates' backgrounds. Most of them actually started out as crew members aboard the respective uh, country's merchant marines or naval ships before turning to a life of piracy. And from what I've read, life aboard those ships was often rougher and actually more tyrannical than it was on actual pirate ships. Like on a merchant ship, for instance, crew members lived in these squalid conditions. They were uh, subject to a ton of rules that were just as strict, if not stricter than those on land. And merchant marines and naval captains, they had the final say on everything that happened on their ships, which left many crew members feeling oppressed and really voiceless as a result.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's really no wonder that so many of them would jump ship and and sign on as pirates instead because, you know, despite their reputation, pirates weren't anarchic or lawless when dealing with one another. I mean, their ranks were composed of these societal outsiders and outcasts. You know, that's definitely true, but they weren't so jaded as to think that social orders of any sort were automatically a bad thing. They just needed to find a better or what they saw as a more fair system. Sure. So, On board pirate ships, that's exactly what they did. I mean, the pirates recognized that in order to prevent infighting and to be able to keep morale high during their months at sea, they needed to do things a little bit more democratically. And so to that end, pirate captains took a vote on just about everything. I mean, from where to go, what to steal, how to deal with prisoners— So really the only time that the captain took complete control was during a battle. And, you know, that's for obvious reasons. That's not a time when it would be smart to pause and take a vote. I love this idea that, like, deciding what to steal
3: should be a democratic vote. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so fun. But, you know, obviously there were more perks to pirate democracy than just saying, you know, where the ship would go or what you're going to steal. If you listen to this breakdown I found from Robert Curson, uh, he's this pirate historian and author of the book Pirate Hunters. It's pretty great. So, So here's what he says. Quote, The captain's vote didn't count any more than the lowliest deckhands. If they wanted to throw the captain out, they could dismiss him or lower his rank. They Hmm. could maroon him on an island or dump him into the sea, all by vote. That was true even if a captain owned his own ship. They had a constitution and even compensation schemes for injuries. The captain almost never earned more than two or three times the wage of the lowliest deckhand. Think about how that must have struck a guy who's come from a tyrannical rule on a merchant ship— where the hours were terrible and the conditions even worse. He gets on a pirate ship and suddenly he has a real say in what they're doing. I mean, it sounds kind of amazing.
2: Yeah, it's pretty weird to think about, but you know, some of these pirates were practicing democracy nearly a century before it took root in America and in France and you know, those constitutions you mentioned were even written down in some cases. And I, I was looking for some examples of this and one of them I was reading about was from one of the most prolific pirates of this golden age, and his name was Black Bart Roberts. Now, he managed to overtake more than 400 ships during his many years at sea, which obviously is no small feat. But mm-hmm. I think what I found most impressive about his career was this set of bylaws that he and a crew member drafted back in 1722. Now, this included some pretty progressive rules that you might not expect you know, from a pirate ship. But You know, take this workers' compensation plan that you had mentioned. According to the bylaws, quote, every man who shall become a cripple or lose a limb in the service shall have 800 pieces of eight from the common stock and for lesser hurts proportionately.
3: I mean, it's kind of amazing that they got that sort of security from a pirate job, right? Like it's no wonder so many people went into piracy.
2: Yeah, and, you know, to stick with Black Bart's bylaws for just a second here, the the other thing I think I was struck by was the picture they painted of life aboard his ship. Because, you know, we tend to think of pirates as this rowdy bunch up all hours of the night drinking and gambling. Of course, that's how things were when the pirates came to port. But according to these bylaws, it was a very different story when they were at sea. So just listen to this from it as well. It says... None shall game for money, either with dice or cards, and the lights and candles shall be put out at eight at night, and if any of the crew desire to drink after that hour, they shall sit upon the open deck without lights." I mean, that's pretty amazing. And and that there's this curfew on a pirate ship,
3: like, that's not something I would have expected. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, there's no gambling. I, I mean, I guess if the goal is to form some sort of peace, those do sound like really smart moves. And, you know, since we're talking about how shockingly judicious pirates could be, I do want to mention another famous pirate that fits that bill, and that's Blackbeard. So he and his cohorts were based in the Bahamas, and they were only active for around seven years or so. But This period from 1713 to 1720 was a super eventful one. In fact, there's some historians that argue that the term Golden Age of Piracy should really only be applied to those seven years and that Mm. seven-year span. So that kind of gives you an idea of how successful Blackbeard and the other islander pirates were. By 1717, the pirates had actually thrown the commercial trade of three separate empires into total disarray, and they even managed to beat back the Royal Navy's warships. I mean, whether you love
2: them or hate them, these pirates really knew how to shake things up. Yeah, that's to put it mildly, I guess. But I mean, what was Blackbeard's deal anyway? Like, was he one of those legitimate sailors who went rogue, or had he always been more of a proper pirate?
3: Yeah, so he and most of the other pirates from the Bahamas started out on merchant and naval ships, and... In a way, their actions as pirates were kind of this revolt and revenge against their former bosses. And this is kind of a tangent, but one of Blackbeard's contemporaries was this guy named Captain Bellamy. And his crew especially loved this new role that they were taking on. Like, the crew actually called themselves Robin Hood's men. And Bellamy once explained to a captive, quote, They vilify, as the scoundrels do, when there is only this difference. They rob the poor under the cover of law, and we plunder the rich under the cover of our
2: own courage. Hmm. I want to make sure we don't go too far here and paint pirates as more heroic than they really were. I mean, you're kind of saying Blackbeard was a level-headed guy or that his actions were maybe justified in some way, at least in his own mind. But how does that square with his reputation as being really a cruel and fearsome pirate? I mean, he was a pretty violent guy, right? Well, I mean, yes and no. So pirates on the whole did some pretty terrible things,
3: and there's no question about that. They invaded, they uh, pillaged ships and colonies, they ransomed hostages, and pretty much ignored any laws but the ones they made up for themselves at sea. But in a lot of cases, including Blackbeard's, that brutality was exaggerated. You know, it was mostly by the imperial authorities on land and the newspapers that they held sway over. And if you think about it, nearly every bit of pop culture associated with pirates, including Treasure Island, is derived from those stories. And it's inspired by Blackbeard and these other Bahamas pirates so that means a, a lot of our understanding of what pirates did is skewed as well, since most of it can be traced back to these somewhat embellished accounts.
2: So so you're saying Blackbeard wasn't as terrifying and cutthroat as as we might think? Exactly. And there are actually dozens of eyewitness accounts of uh,
3: Blackbeard's victims. And with the exception of his final bloody showdown with the Royal Navy, not a single one of them mentions the pirate captain actually killing anyone. And if that's kind of hard to swallow, it's probably because Blackbeard himself purposely cultivated his image as this fearsome force to be reckoned with. Like, if you listen to this description, uh, I I found this at the Smithsonian, but, but you'll see what I mean. Quote, Blackbeard wore a silk sling over his shoulders on which there were three braces of pistols hanging in holsters like bandoliers. Under his hat, he tied lit fuses, dangling some of them down the sides of his face so as to surround it with a halo of smoke and fire, making him look more frightful than a fury from hell. Merchant crews would take one look at this apparition and the army of wild men around him bearing cutlasses, muskets, and primitive hand grenades and invariably surrender without firing
2: a shot. So I, I guess it was all for show then, like kind of an intimidation tactic?
3: Right, and I I mean, some pirates really did perform the horrible acts we read about, like uh, dragging someone who crossed them beneath their ship, but that wasn't their first choice. Like, they mostly wanted to just frighten people into giving up without a fight, and and that's actually what the whole pirate flag was about. Like, when a black flag was hoisted, it was a message that another ship should prepare to be boarded and pillaged, but also that they wouldn't come to harm so long as they cooperated. Meanwhile, you've got, like, a red flag, which was a much more rare but a completely different story— and that meant the pirates had come for blood. But this desire for nonviolent resolution really makes a lot of sense when you think about how practical pirates were in general. I mean, like, why slaughter your captives when you could just ransom them for money or put them to work in your own crew?
2: I mean, that's just, just business 101, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so since we're on the subject of surprising pirate traits, we we should probably talk about how egalitarian pirates actually were. Because... You know, not only did they welcome those of low economic or social standing into their crews, but they also made room for folks who were frequent targets of discrimination on land, and that includes Africans, European Jews, and women. But before we get into that, let's take one more quick break.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
3: Okay, well, so you mentioned before the break that pirating was sort of an equal opportunity profession. And that makes sense when you think about it, because if you're on the run from the Royal Navy or whatever, the race or gender of your crewmates isn't going to be a top priority. And for the most part, pirates welcomed all comers. And that had to be pretty enticing for people who felt repressed or restricted on land, I'm guessing, right? Like, what did they have to lose?
2: Yeah, that makes sense, and I do think a great example of that mentality are the bands of Jewish pirates that took to the open ocean during the early seventeen hundreds. Now, this is honestly something I'd never heard about before this week, and apparently historians are still piecing together their history as well. Like I was reading that just in this past decade, several graveyards were found in the Caribbean, and. Many of the tombstones there feature Hebrew writing and stars of David right alongside those iconic skull and crossbone symbols.
3: I mean, that is pretty wild. So I, I hadn't heard about this either. But what made
2: so many Jewish people go pirate? Well, I guess the seeds of it were actually planted in the very same month that Columbus set sail back in 1492. So after sending Columbus on his way, the king and queen of Spain ordered the expulsion of all Jews and Muslims from the country. Now, Portugal did the same thing just a few years later. So these Spanish-Portuguese Jews set out to find new homes, and many of them wound up settling on Caribbean islands. And in fact, by the 1720s, when Jewish pirates first set sail, an estimated 20% of Kingston, Jamaica's population was descended from Jewish exiles. Wow. Yeah, so a, a few of these Jews started captaining their own pirate ships and Christening them with names like Queen Esther and the Shield of Abraham. And for the most part, these Jewish pirates would exclusively target Spanish and Portuguese ships, not surprisingly, because this was really seen as payback for those generations of unjust treatment. I mean,
3: this is fascinating. So it sounds like we're still uncovering the full history of Jewish pirates. But I am curious, are there any notorious ones we should know about? Like, like who's the blackbeard of Jewish pirates?
2: You know, I'm not sure about that exactly, but I think my favorite was probably Shmuel Palachi, who supposedly joined in a number of pirate raids against the Dutch and Spanish ships. But here's the wild thing about Palachi he was actually a rabbi.
3: Wait, he was a rabbi
2: pirate? <laughs> I yeah. feel like that's kind of an oxymoron, right? Well, apparently not. I mean, by most accounts, Palachi was also pretty pious. So not only did he insist that his crew donate a tenth of their treasure to charity, he also made sure they all kept kosher during their voyages.
3: That's amazing. So no shellfish. But, uh, yeah. y- you know, we're talking about how piracy was this drastic kind of escape for repressed people. And I, I think another great example mm-hmm. of that are the many women who built new lives for themselves at sea. So most of them earned their keep as servants or cooks or prostitutes, but a few also found work as merchant sailors, naval officers, and and even pirates. For instance, there's this Irish pirate named Grace O'Malley, And in the 16th century, she became one of the few female pirates to captain her own ship. And she made a pretty frightening name for herself all along the coast of Ireland. Like, she had a bunch of really intense scars on her face, which she claimed were from being attacked by an eagle. And Mm. if that wasn't badass enough, she also reportedly gave birth to her youngest son while aboard her ship and then proceeded to fight off invaders with her baby in one hand and a sword in the other. (laughs) is that
2: unreal? Yeah, that's pretty impressive and definitely something Blackbeard can't claim to have done. But yeah, yeah, I think for my money, the undisputed queen of female pirates, and and honestly, maybe just pirates in general, has got to be Captain Ching Shi. Now, in the early 19th century, she spent her youth working as a courtesan on a floating brothel in Canton, China. Now, during this time, she made a name for herself as this really shrewd businesswoman, and apparently she had a knack for blackmail and would often use the secrets that she'd heard as a prostitute, and she would do this in order to control her wealthy and influential clients. So as you might imagine, this was a pretty attractive skill to a pirate, which is how she came to marry this other very famous pirate, one of the South China Sea, and his name was Ching Ai Sao. And this guy was no slouch when it came to pirating. And by the time he married the 26-year-old Ching Shi, this was in, I think, 1801, Chang had already united a bunch of rival pirate gangs into what he called the Red Flag Fleet. So, did
3: Shi have any power herself, or was she kind of just this figurehead?
2: No, she was definitely a very active participant in her husband's enterprise. and in fact, you know, many of these stories report that she actually demanded equal control of the fleet as a condition of their marriage. and huh. her role really only grew as time went on. So it was only six years into their marriage that Cheng passed away suddenly, and this was at the age of forty two and a few weeks later, Ching Shi took her husband's place as the leader of the Red Flag Fleet. Which, to me, sounds a
3: little suspicious, like her husband <laughs> suddenly dies. But yeah. did, do we know how big that fleet
2: was that she inherited? Well, we don't know how many ships or men she inherited from her husband, but we do have a pretty good estimate of the size of her fleet a few years after she took over. And that's because in 1809, her forces captured an East India Company employee named Richard Glasspool. Now, after he was released a few months later, he writes this account of his experience, and it included this detailed estimate of Ching Shih's forces. So according to him, there were roughly 80,000 pirates under her command and over 1,800 ships in her fleet. And so wow. to give you an idea of just how vast her entourage was, consider that Blackbeard himself commanded only four ships and 300 pirates, and that was at his peak.
3: I mean, those numbers really are insane, like 80,000 pirates and 1,800 yeah. ships. Like, I i don't know how you could actually keep that many pirates in check.
2: Well, Ching Shi borrowed from other pirates' playbooks in that regard because once she took command, she quickly instituted this strict code of laws for all of her men to follow. And strict really is the key word here. And just as an example, if any pirate disobeyed a superior's orders or started giving orders of their own they were immediately beheaded right on the spot. And, you know, she had some really specific rules about female captives that you probably won't find in any other pirate codes. Like, there was this one rule that said if a pirate took a female prisoner for his wife, he had to be faithful to her and couldn't sleep around. That's really interesting. But, you know, I I am
3: still kind of hung up on the sheer size of her operation. I I, I mean, her fleet probably, like,
2: you could see it rivaling some other nation's entire armed forces from that time. I mean, probably so. In fact, under Ching Shih's command, the Red Flag Fleet fought off not only the Chinese military, but the East India Company, the Portuguese Navy. And, you know, they were undefeated for three full years until Ching Shih finally retired altogether back in 1810. Wait, so she retired? Like, I, I didn't even know pirates could do that. I mean, of course, not many of them did, and even fewer, if any, retired in the way that (laughs) Ching Shi did. And, you know, you look back at her retirement, it was actually part of a deal that she made with the Chinese government. And, you know, after years of defeat, the officials were just desperate to get Ching Shi out of the spotlight by any means necessary. And so they extended this offer to her, wherein she and her forces would surrender and go their separate ways. And This was in return for amnesty and full pensions for every single member of the crew. Wait, all 80,000 of them got pensions? Yeah, isn't that wild? (laughs) So she and her forces were seen as such a big threat that the Chinese government basically paid them all to stop being pirates. I mean, it was definitely a -a one-of-a-kind deal, at least as far as I can tell. That
3: is amazing. And, you know, I, I know we're talking about criminals here, but I have to say it is pretty cool that not only were there female pirates, but kind of the most badass pirates
2: of them all tend to be women here. Yeah. And there's actually this great quote that I wanted to read from a pirate historian and the author of a book called Pirate Women. So her name is Laura Sook Duncombe. And and here, she's talking about that attraction to pirating and the freedom it entailed that we mentioned earlier. And while she's talking specifically in this case about female pirates, I really think this could apply to almost all the ones that we've talked about today. So here's what she says. All of these pirates had ships that were very different and methods that were very different. But I think they share the desire to control their own fates. And the desire for freedom from convention would unite all these women. Their hopes to escape the normal and be a part of something adventurous would tie all these women together. And we all share that desire for adventure. Not the desire for slitting throats or plundering the high seas, But one can empathize with the desire to have a say in how their life goes. Yeah, I I do feel like people want to have a say in how their life goes, and I
3: I like that. But uh, how about we end on that note and start the fact off? So the Pittsburgh Pirates used to go by a totally different name, the Pittsburgh Alleghenies, you know, named after the mountain range. But when they poached the second baseman from the Philadelphia Athletics in the 1880s, Philadelphia newspapers were outraged. They called it a theft and they referred to the team as a bunch of pirates and the name stuck. That's how Mm. they got the name.
2: Wow. One of my favorite pirates who isn't often talked about these days is Jean LaFoot, who was a barefoot pirate who used to be the nemesis of Captain Crunch. So (laughs) now I don't know the full story behind this rivalry. Uh, Apparently, Captain Horatio P. Crunch was created by an ad firm, and this was in response to a survey that claimed kids hated soggy cereal. I love that they had to do a survey to find out (laughs) that people don't like soggy cereal. But because the cereal was so crunchy, the pirates wanted it. Uh, Anyway, the the captain was so popular and did such a good job of fighting off LaFoot that There was once a public movement to promote him to the rank of admiral, but Quaker Oats was not convinced, and he's been overlooked now for, I don't know, several decades. (laughs) Yeah, Admiral Crunch isn't a cereal
3: I'd pick up in this (laughs) cereal. That's right. So have you ever heard of Pirate Joe's in Vancouver?
2: Yeah, I don't think so.
3: So it's this store that was recently shut down, but basically this guy in Canada would drive down to Trader Joe's groceries in the U.S. because there are no Trader Joe's stores in Canada. He'd buy a ton of stuff in bulk and then sneak it back up and sell it at a higher cost. (laughs) He had actually been banned from Trader Joe's stores for doing this, so sometimes he'd wear wigs or dresses or— fake mustaches and pinstripe suits. It got really elaborate. Sometimes he'd even recruit day laborers to help him shop and pay at the register. Like, it was crazy. (laughs) And when Trader Joe's took him to court in 2016, they did this in the U.S., they couldn't prove that he was actually hurting their business. So he kind of got to keep doing it for a while. And then finally, Trader Joe's brought another court battle during the last court battle, he took the P off his sign to change it from pirate Joes to irate Joes. (laughs) And uh, when he finally settled the case, the shop closed
2: down in 2017. All right. Well, something equally ridiculous here. We've talked about the Pastafarian religion before and the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. So Mm -hmm. just for anybody who doesn't know, it was this satirical religion that was invented really in response to religious fundamentalists. And The main claim is that a flying spaghetti monster is just as likely as any other type of god, so that's the one they chose to worship. But for some reason, the very first Pastafarian wedding also had a pirate connection to it. Now, the event took place in New Zealand. This was just a couple of years ago, and the bride and groom were head to toe in pirate gear, and everyone there wore eye patches. (laughs) Of course, right? (laughs) Now, that said, there was also this nod to pasta, and so the officiant wore a colander on her head, which is the official headdress of the church. The couple exchanged rings of pasta, and in their vows, they agreed to always add salt when boiling spaghetti.
3: (laughs) Very romantic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when Julius Caesar was 25 years old, he was kidnapped by pirates. And when the pirates asked for a ransom of 20 talents of silver, he just laughed in their faces and told them to up it to 50 because he was worth so much more than that. So that's actually the part of the story I'd heard before. But the part I didn't know was that he was stuck on the ship for 38 days. And during that time... He was not a good hostage. He was just completely unintimidated by these uh, pirates. Not only did he refuse to cower to them, he actually treated them like they were his servants. He'd write poetry and then force them to listen to it. When he uh, when he slept, he demanded they stop talking. And instead of acting like a prisoner, he just kind of like stomped around doing what he wanted to do, and, and they kind of gave him respect for it. Of course, while he did act chummy with them the whole time, he let them know that they should watch out. And when he was finally freed... He, of course, rounded up a small fleet, found his way back to them, took back his 50 talents, took the rest of their possessions as well, and then eventually had them killed, which, you know, is very Julius Caesar of
2: him. That yeah, is so Julius Caesar of him. But <laughs> All right. Well, one of the best ways to fight off modern pirates might just be pop music, and in particular, the music of Britney Spears. I was looking at this old Guardian article from 2013 And Britney Spears emerged as this unlikely figurehead in the fight against Somali pirates. And that's because British naval officers started blasting the songs, Oops, I Did It Again, and Baby One More Time at them. (laughs) And strangely, the tactic proved more intimidating than guns and harpoons, apparently, because it's one naval officer put it, quote, her songs were chosen by the security team because they thought the pirates would hate them the most. These guys can't stand Western culture or music making Britney hits perfect. And as soon as the pirates get a blast of Britney, they move on as quickly as they can.
3: <laughs> so what I love about that story too, is like you're talking about reporting from 2013 and those songs I feel like came out in like 2000, 2001, sometime around mm-hmm. then. Yeah. So like they didn't just like pick the latest pop songs. They no. went back and specifically
2: chose Britney to scare off pirates. Very <laughs> specific. They're still just as powerful today. So I'd, I'd be curious if they, if they go back and use them again. Well, I do feel like you have to get the trophy for that. I saved that one, especially for last, just for that. In fact, I knew I'd get this one locked up. Well, I'm sure there are other great facts that we have not mentioned today about Pirates, and we'd love to hear those from you guys. As always, you can always email us, part-time genius at howstuffworks.com, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But from Tristan, Gabe, Mango, and me, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the
2: editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: <laughs> Gary Rowland does the exact producer thing.